For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at John 20, verses 1 through 31, which I entitled, Explanations for the Empty Tomb. There are many theories for the empty tomb, and we want to examine each one of those critically. But I think the first starting point for us is to understand what the implications of the resurrection are. First of all, the, res- the resurrection distinguishes a common criminal crucified in the first century from God's Savior. If there wasn't an account of Jesus' resurrection, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this event this morning. N.T. Wright, the distinguished scholar, and who really wrote the definitive work on the resurrection, says, after Jesus of Nazareth had been executed, anybody two days, three days, three weeks, or three years after that would never have said that he was the Messiah unless something extraordinary had happened to convince them that God had vindicated him. So something special, something miraculous must have happened to convince the disciples and Jesus' followers that He was indeed the Messiah, the chosen one of God. Secondly, Jesus' bodily resurrection validates his sacrifice on the cross. I think this is an important point because when you study the Bible, God in the Old Testament instituted what you might call the sacrificial system. And God was giving us a picture, a symbol of how he would make man right with him. You know, the priest would offer an unblemished animal symbolizing its innocence, and the priest would offer this on the behalf of the guilty party. And so this atoned for the moral wrongdoing of that person. Really, the sacrificial system found its greatest expression one day each year during the Day of Atonement. During this uh, event, The high priest of Israel would gather all of the people of Israel and he would take an unblemished goat and place his hands onto the goat and symbolically confess the sins of the people onto this victim, slaughter it, and then he would offer the sacrifice in the temple. And so if the high priest emerged from the temple unscathed, That indicated that God indeed accepted his sacrifice. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. So the resurrection of Jesus was a validation of God's acceptance of his sacrifice. Thirdly, Jesus rising from the dead represents the most important event in history, second only to Jesus' death on the cross. The Bible teaches that Jesus came for the explicit purpose of coming and paying the moral debt we deserve to pay ourselves, because we've done things to offend God. And so the resurrection shows us not only that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice, but also he gives us hope of eternal life. With that, why don't we turn to our passage in John 20 and start reading in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark. Now, unlike our week, 
The first day of the Jewish calendar would be on Sunday, the day after Passover, which was from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday night. So this was early Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At this time, uh, grave robbery or grave desecration was becoming more and more popular. In fact, the Emperor Claudius in AD 41 declared an edict that anyone who desecrated or robbed a grave would be executed as a result. So it must be that Mary Magdalene thought that somebody had come in and robbed Jesus' tomb since he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Verse 3 and 4, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, the Apostle John the author of this gospel, gospel often refers to himself in the third person. So most biblical commentators think that the other disciple refers to him. And he was a young man at this time, about 16 years old. And the accounts that we have about Peter was that he was sort of this big burly man, probably ate a little, you know, a few too many falafels. And so John the apostle makes it to the tomb first. He bent over and looked in and and at the strips of linen lying there, but he didn't go in. And so he noticed some strange details about the empty tomb, that there were these strips of linen, which, you know, these were valuable. People often would take this whenever they would rob a grave along with the other articles in the, in the tomb. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, finally arrived and went into the tomb. Breathless, he probably pushed John aside and Peter saw the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. He saw the strips of linen lying there. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Now, students of the Bible have identified two miraculous events in this account. The first is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And secondly, a single man managed to fold his own clothes. Well, I think what we have here is one of the first pieces of evidence, one of the undeniable facts of this account, which is the empty tomb. Most scholars, even the most skeptical, would look at this and say, without a doubt, there was an empty tomb. And there are a few pieces of evidence, a few details in the Gospels that are very striking. First of all, there, were, there was no veneration of Jesus' tomb. At the time that Jesus died, there were about 50 prophets, and the people knew where their tombs lay. And these were the objects of veneration and worship among the Jewish people in the first century. And yet there's no evidence that the disciples or any of Jesus' followers actually worshipped at Jesus' tomb. Indeed, if you go to Israel you'll find that they're not even certain where Jesus was buried. Secondly, the time and place of the first preaching of this message. It's very interesting that 
Peter, about 50 days later, gets up in front of a large group of people and starts proclaiming the message of Christ. And yet Jerusalem was a very small city by comparison to many of our cities today. It was about 50,000 people the size of maybe Mansfield, Ohio. And so it would be very easy for any one of Jesus' critics to be able to produce a body and discredit Peter's message. Also, there's this odd reference to this individual named Joseph of Arimathea. Apparently, Joseph of Arimathea held a very high position in the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. And he requested for Jesus' body from Pilate so that he could take Jesus' body and bury Jesus in his own tomb. Typically, what they did with crucifixion victims, they would take their bodies and throw them into a large mass grave. But Joseph of Arimathea believed in Jesus, and so he decided to give Jesus a proper burial. Now, it's inconceivable that the disciples would make up a detail about this prominent Jewish figure in such a small city because it would be very easy to validate that or verify it. Also, the presence of women. Unlike today, in the ancient world, the testimony of women carried no weight at all. And so it's sort of an embarrassing detail in the Gospels that the first people to arrive at the empty tomb and to encounter the risen Jesus were actually women. And it would seem really odd that the disciples would concoct this detail if they knew that it, was, it would be an embarrassing detail for them because it made these women look courageous while it made them look cowardly because they were hiding. We're told in verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, John. He saw and he believed. Something about what he saw in the empty tomb, probably the linen lying there, convinced him that something must have happened. Namely, that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, we're not told by John what Peter thought in this case, but the author Luke actually gives us a hint. In Luke 24, verse 12, bending over, Peter saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So he was puzzled by this whole event. He wasn't sure, unlike John. Verse 10 and 11, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Apparently, Mary made her way back to the tomb, and she sat there grieving. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, at one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. It's very clear that she didn't have this anticipation that Jesus would rise from the dead. She was was despondent. She was crestfallen that her, her Messiah, the chosen one of God, had died. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. You know that feeling when you're just, you know, you sense that somebody's standing there. But she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking that he was a gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. 
She probably thought that he was complicit with the grave robbery or at least witnessed this. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So he assures her, he says, I'm not going anywhere. I haven't returned to the Father. Go back to my disciples and report what you have seen. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she said. And she told them all that he had said, uh, and he told them all that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, so they were all huddled together, afraid, afraid that they might face the same kind of persecution and maybe even crucifixion that Jesus did, we're told that Jesus came and stood among them. Yeah, you know that eerie feeling, you know, you're sitting somewhere and some, you sense that somebody is standing over you. And we're told that he says, peace be with you. And they must have been like, whoa, you know. They probably jumped when they saw Jesus. They probably thought to themselves, are we seeing things? Are we hallucinating? Did somebody put something in the hummus? What's going on here? Well, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And so he provided evidence. He said, look, look at my hands and my feet. They're pierced. Touch my side. Now, I think the eyewitness testimony of the risen Christ gives us really the second fact of the resurrection. That the disciples believed that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. Paul gives us probably the most succinct uh, list of eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and to the risen Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. We're told in verse 3 through 8, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So he gives us an impressive list here. First of all, he mentions the apostle Peter. And it's very interesting when you look at Peter's behavior prior to the crucifixion. He was running scared. In fact, he denied Christ on several occasions when people asked him, do you know Jesus? And yet, 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, he gets before a large crowd of thousands of people and boldly declares that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so it raises this question, what transformed this cowering country bumpkin into this bold proclaimer of God's truth? He must have seen something. Also, we're told that Jesus appeared to the 12, which refers to the 12 disciples. And again, when you look at their behavior prior to the resurrection, many of them were running scared. We're told that when the Roman guards came and arrested 
Jesus, all of the disciples scattered. And yet they played a prominent role in the early church, leading. Then Paul says that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. Again, skeptics of the Bible regard the book of 1 Corinthians as one of the earliest New Testament documents, probably written around AD 51. Jesus died in AD 33. So this was about 18 years afterward. And Paul is taunting his skeptical audience, the Corinthians, to go and verify with some of these people who saw Jesus, who are still alive, to interview them and find out whether this was actually true. That's pretty strong evidence. It's not something you would do if you were trying to fabricate a story. Then he says that Jesus appeared to James. This was Jesus' younger half-brother. Okay? Many of us have older siblings here. What would it take to convince you that your older brother was the Son of God? (laughs) But, you know, none of us have ever had a compulsion or temptation to worship our older brother. Indeed, we're told in the Gospels that James, along with his family members, were skeptical about Jesus during his life. At one point when he declared that he was the son of God, they tried to seize him and take him away because they thought he was mad. And yet something happened that transformed James's view of Jesus. He became one of the leading figures in the early church. And then finally, Paul says, he appeared to me. Now, if you ever study the life of the Apostle Paul, this guy, prior to meeting Christ, was not somebody who was sympathetic to Christians. In fact, he was headed on his way to Damascus, north of Jerusalem, looking to persecute Christians. And yet, he encountered the risen Christ. And at that point, made a 180-degree turn and started uh, really becoming one of the greatest Christian leaders in, in history. You know, most of what we know about the world and history comes from eyewitness testimony. You know, this morning you probably picked up your paper, read the news, or maybe you, uh, you know, logged on to Yahoo News or turned on your cable news outlet of, of your choice, right? And although you may not believe the spin that they're putting on a story or maybe even the bias that they have, You believe the general contour of the story, right? You believe that um, when you read about or saw that there was a crash on 270, you believe that that actually happened, although maybe the details of that might be fuzzy. Or when you read in the paper that, you know, your favorite team won last night, you don't sit there wondering skeptically, is this even true? Secondly, most of what we know in history is based on eyewitness testimony. To put it another way, if we did not rely on eyewitness testimony and relied only on our, you know, individual powers of surveillance, exhaustive surveillance, you know, we would really have no idea what happened in history, such as Abraham Lincoln getting assassinated. I mean, if if we discarded all eyewitness testimony, most of history would vanish, And finally, we know that eyewitness testimony 
can actually be strong evidence, so strong that it can actually convict people. You know, if three individuals came with independent eyewitness accounts of the same murder that took place, that would be enough evidence to throw that person in jail for the rest of their lives. And so we rely on eyewitness testimony. It's very strong. Now, I think it's worthwhile for us to talk about some alternative explanations to the empty tomb. After all, you know, people are very cynical, maybe skeptical of the Bible. I think the most obvious alternative explanation would be the stolen body theory. That the disciples were despondent because they believed that Jesus would come as this reigning king. And then the Romans captured him, killed him. And so in order to salvage the three and a half years that they had sunk into following Jesus, they decided to overpower the Roman guards, steal Jesus' body, and claim that he was in fact raised from the dead. Um, But really, the disciples lacked a clear motive for stealing Jesus' body and lying about it. When you look at the book of Acts, which details the early church, the events following Jesus' resurrection. The disciples endured intense persecution. Their family and their friends rejected them. They lived like vagabonds. Really, there's nothing that you read about in the New Testament as well as the extra-biblical accounts of the early church fathers that indicates the disciples had a clear motive for lying about this. Indeed, many if not all of the disciples actually died as a result of following Christ. And so what did they end up with? Typically, when people try to start a new religion, there is some sort of motivation that you can look to. Money, power, things like that. And yet the disciples didn't have any of those things. You know, when you look at people... Um, you have to look for a clear motive for why they do things. You know, you think about um, in the early church, when, when the disciples um, faced the Romans, um, they had an opportunity to get out of this. Uh, typically, they would, the Roman guards would ask them to renounce their faith, and if they did so, uh, the disciples or Jesus' followers were free to leave. And yet it seems like the disciples didn't take that that route. You know, when you think about people when they're lying, you know, you think about somebody who is mentally ill or unstable. And, you know, they might die for something that they believe to be true, even though it's false. But even a mentally unstable person or mentally ill person wouldn't die for something that they knew was actually a lie, or at least believed to be a lie. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, uh, I met this guy who I became good friends with, and at one point, he, in a moment of vulnerability, intimated to me that he believed he was actually a werewolf. Okay? I sort of rolled my eyes when he said that. But... um, He told me this story about how he went to a party and a guy, one of his friends, offered him a beer. And he looked at him with disgust. He said, I refuse. And the guy said, what's wrong with you? Why why won't you take this beer? He said, that's Coors Light. 
He said, don't you know that silver bullets kill werewolves? No thanks. So he jumps in his car, drives to the store, buys some beer, and comes back. Okay. Well, it turns out this guy was known to make up these sort of stories to get attention. And it's very clear that he probably would drink Coors Light if his life depended on it. Or if he didn't have any money. And that was the only alternative. And so I guess what I'm suggesting here is that, you know, when people lie, um, they're willing to lie when there are no consequences involved. And yet the disciples faced the worst consequence of all. They lost their lives as a result of following Christ. Also, there was the risk of damnation. You know, you have to remember that these people, the disciples, they were devout first century Jewish men. They believed that if they were claiming that an individual other than God himself was actually God, that they would be committing what you might call blasphemy. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and 15. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he actually raised Christ from the dead. In other words, if we're lying here, then we're blaspheming. We're, we're, we're lying about God. The other theory is what you might call the swoon theory. This is the belief that Jesus actually survived the resurrection, was buried, managed to rip off the linen, roll this very heavy tombstone out of the way, overpower two Roman guards, and on his elbows and knees, make his way to the disciples, convincing them that he was actually raised from the dead. Okay? Of course, this is not very plausible. But if you're a skeptic here, uh, I'll entertain your questions about this. Here's the Roman historian from the second century, Tacitus and his annals. And mind you, Tacitus was not a Christian. He says, Christus was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea where the mischief originated, but through the, the city of Rome also. So it's a very clear statement that, that Christ, this individual that they call Christus, which actually he misspells, it should be Christos, um, was put to death by Pontius Pilate. Here's the Talmud, a Jewish text. It says, On the eve of Passover they hanged Yeshua, which is another name for Jesus, not having found anything in his favor, but they hanged him on the eve of Passover, corroborating the gospel accounts. And finally, the Journal of American Medical Association actually did a study on crucifixion highlighting the gospel accounts about Jesus' crucifixion to detail the physiological effects of crucifixion on its victim. And they conclude, clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. The small detail about the Roman guards coming and piercing Jesus at his side and a mixture of water and blood flowing from his side was, seems like an authentic detail. 
because it indicates that there was massive blood clotting in the major arteries of his body, which led to uh, his heart cavity filling up with fluid. And so there's very good evidence that Jesus indeed died. And, you know, the Romans were pretty good at their job. You know, when they were set to execute somebody, um, there are no known cases where people survived this. All right, the mass hallucination theory. So as you can see, we're going from the most plausible to the least plausible. This theory suggests that, you know, the disciples, because of their anticipation that Jesus would rise from the dead, had a mass hallucination, believing that they actually saw the risen Christ when they did not. And, you know, what I would say to this is, you know, to think that uh, several groups of people over a period of weeks had independent hallucinations of the risen Christ seems very unlikely. In fact, there are no documented cases where groups of people had mass hallucinations within a short period of time. So I think when we look at these theories and evaluate them, you know, most people would say, are these plausible? Maybe the stolen body theory. But these other theories, such as the swoon theory and the mass hallucination theory, they seem highly unlikely. But to the skeptic, to the naturalist, they would say, even though these are unlikely, anything is more probable than appealing to the supernatural. And yet, I think there's good evidence to suggest if you suspend um, your skepticism for a moment and admit to to the possibility that maybe even a God exists, you're actually opening the door to the supernatural at that point. You're opening the door to something like this, the possibility that, indeed, Jesus was raised from the dead. And so when I look at this as an alternative theory, and if you open up the possibility that, that in fact, God operates and works in human history, then I think that these are improbable by comparison to the, to the belief that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. You know, when you look at Jesus' followers, they risk life and limb insisting the tomb was empty because they truly believed that Jesus had risen. That's a fact. I mean, you know, whether he was actually raised from the dead or not, I guess that's open for dispute. But what you cannot say is that the disciples were not fervent in their belief that Jesus actually raised from the dead. Gary Habermas says this, It seems clear that the disciples were utterly persuaded that the risen Christ had appeared to them. The data is strong enough that it is granted by virtually all critical scholars. Here's uh, C.D. Mule. He says, If the coming into existence of the Nazarenes, the Christians, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, rips a great hole in history, a hole the size and shape of the resurrection, what does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? The birth and rapid rise of the church remain an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself, namely the resurrection of Christ. Going back to our passage here. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, 
We have seen the Lord. This verb, told him, is in the progressive present, which you're probably sitting here and saying, oh, that's very enlightening. <laughs> but um, it indicates that they were insisting continually. We're telling you. He rose from the dead. And yet they still, he still did not believe. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He said, you know, I, I'm not satisfied just to see the nail marks in his hands and his feet. I actually want to put my hand in his side where they pierced him. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You can imagine Thomas's shock. Jesus was like, so you were saying, Thomas? <laughs> he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. You know, you can imagine Jesus grabbing Thomas's hand. Come on. Come see it. He says, stop doubting and believe. You know, if you ever study the life of Thomas, this guy, he was kind of a skeptic. I can relate to him. At one point in John chapter 11, Jesus declared that one of his friends, Lazarus, died. And he told the disciples, I want you to accompany me to go and see him. But at the time, the Jewish leaders were looking to kill Jesus. And so Thomas said, uh, yeah, I guess we should go and die with Lazarus too. And yet it's very interesting, despite Thomas's reluctance and skepticism, he went anyways. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Stunning statement. You know, it's interesting. People have dubbed Thomas Doubting Thomas. And yet, here Thomas furnishes us one of the greatest statements about Jesus in the Gospels. Declaring him to be God himself. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So he says, it's great now that since I've furnished you this evidence that you believe, but blessed are those who are able to look at the evidence itself and come to a trust that this actually happened. So, you know, you might be sitting here and thinking, this is very academic. And I want to make it very clear that the implications here are a little bit greater than some sort of academic exercise, that this has implications for our lives. What's at stake if the resurrection never actually happened? I think, first of all, if Jesus was not raised, then our faith is meaningless, you know, you might have grown up in church and you might have heard, you know, your pastor or your priest or your teacher tell you that, you know, what really matters is Easter faith, that Jesus rose in your heart. Whether he actually rose bodily, that's not really the point. And yet, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. In other words, you're wasting your time. Your belief that Jesus has actually forgiven you for the things that you've done wrong 
It's false. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, Paul says, if our hope in in Christ is only for this life, we are to be pitied more than anyone else in the world. He points out, he says, you know, when you look at somebody and they believe in something uh, powerfully or strongly, you know, we say to them, oh, it's great that this person has so much faith. It's inspiring. And yet we would never say that about somebody who believed in something that is just patently false, right? If somebody said, oh, I really believe in the tooth fairy and they were a grown person, we wouldn't think that that was inspiring. Or if they believed in a flat earth, right? We would say that's foolish. And so to believe in something that's actually false, namely that Jesus rose from the dead and stake our future hope on that is foolish. You know, When it comes to the Christian faith, it's not the faith itself that matters. It's the object of our faith that matters. Whether what we believe is actually true, not whether we believe it wholeheartedly. And so Paul says, you know, if Jesus never actually rose from the dead, then we're the biggest fools here. We're wasting our time. You just wasted 45 minutes of your time this morning. You're welcome. Finally, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I mean, isn't this really what our culture says? There's really no hope. Once you die, all that will last of you is the memory that people hold of you and your life. And once those people vanish, all trace of you vanishes with it. It's pretty dark. And so what do people say? I might as well just live the most comfortable life I can possibly live. Please my senses have the the greatest experiences that I can possibly have that money can buy. Because once I die, that's that's all there is, this life. Secondly, if God did not raise Jesus from the dead, then we have no guarantee of our future resurrection. You know, in the Eastern or uh, Hindu view of the afterlife, you go through cycles of death and rebirth. And the ultimate aim is that one day your existence gets extinguished. Or that you become a part of the all and lose your sense of identity. According to the Bible, when we die... As followers of Christ, we actually get to experience continuity in our relationships between this life and in the next. That God will actually raise us from the dead as personal beings with the same characteristics and identity that we had here on earth, minus all the bad stuff. And that we get to enjoy the rest of eternity with the people we love. Who have received Christ. Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven tells this touching story about this young girl. He says, When five year old Emily Kimball was hospitalized and heard that she was going to die, she started to cry. Even though she loved Jesus and wanted to be with him, she didn't want to leave her, ha- her family behind. Then her mother had an inspired idea. She asked Emily to step through a doorway into another room 
and she closed the door behind her. One at a time, the entire family started coming through the door to join her. Her mother explained that this was how it would be. Emily would go ahead to heaven, and then the rest of the family would follow. Emily understood. She would be the first to go through death's door. Eventually, the rest of the family would follow, probably one by one, joining her on the other side. Folks, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead, then this isn't an inspiring story. It's a travesty. And yet, if Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, it's a story of profound hope that one day we can be reunited to the people we love most. So it raises this final question. What if Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, John concludes in John 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The reason that God detailed all of these events about Jesus' life in the Bible is to communicate to each one of us that he has a plan and purpose for our lives, that he wants to be reunited to us. You know, you may have grown up going to church, hearing that God wants to judge you, that he wants to punish you, that he's looking for reasons to throw you into hell. That's contrary to what I read in the Bible. The God of the Bible is merciful. He's loving. He's compassionate. And he's gone to the furthest extent to pay for our moral wrongdoings by sending his son Jesus. And he did that because he loves us. And so if you're here this morning, I would challenge you to investigate this further. If any of this piqued your interest, there's tons of evidence out there for belief in Christianity and the Bible. If you're here and you've heard evidence before, and you feel yourself sort of teetering on the edge of belief, maybe this is your opportunity this morning to turn to God and receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. All right. Happy Easter, everyone. Why don't we just uh, spend some time praying? I'll pray for all of us, and I uh, hope you have a good day. Jesus, we thank you that you rose from the dead. We thank you that you give us a living hope that uh, one day... We will not only be able to meet you, um, but that we get to spend the rest of eternity with you. We thank you that your resurrection, your bodily resurrection, gives us a guarantee of our future hope as well. That uh, we will have resurrected bodies. You know, many of us uh, have experienced many health problems, have uh, many different ailments that have caused us suffering throughout our lives. We thank you that in the next life, you promise to heal us, to renew us, to give us a new body, to take away those ailments. And we thank you uh, most of all that this future hope of the resurrection also gives us the ability to have amazing spiritual community here and a life of purpose. Finally, I pray for anyone, Lord, who uh, just senses that you're real 
And then maybe you are speaking through this passage to them that they would have the courage to step forward in their hearts and turn to you to receive the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus. Thank you for anyone who did that. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.